Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Hi, everybody. Hi, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I've got somebody with a very apt title on the podcast today. I've got Kate Williams. She's a professor of public engagement with history at the University of Reading. And let me tell you, she is a brilliant engager of the public with history. She's as charismatic as she is talented and knowledgeable. She's here. This is actually a repeat of a podcast we did a couple of years ago on Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, the reason I'm repeating this podcast is because it's a big week for, for Mary, a lot of big, important career milestones. She was born on the 8th of December, 1542. And then, this is not good for people worrying about how quickly they're ascending the greasy pole, she became queen just a few days later, on the 14th of December, 1542. So if you're worried about how fast you're getting there in life, wherever there is, Mary, this podcast might not be for you. But then again, it might be for you, because it neatly demonstrates that sometimes it's not the title on the door, it's not the big corner office with the nice view, because... Mary had an unenviable life. She was briefly queen of both Scotland and France. She suffered at the loss of a husband there. She then returned to Scotland. She had a pretty good claim. Don't tell Elizabeth Tudor I said this, but she had a pretty good claim to the throne of England. And therefore she was seen as a threat. She was manipulated, even sexually assaulted in Scotland and ended her life as a prisoner of Elizabeth, one of her actually many victims. So anyway, spoiler alert there, but it's worth listening to the podcast. Before you listen to the podcast, got a bit of housekeeping for you. We're going on tour. The History Hit podcast is doing a series of live recordings around the UK next year. We're going to be post-COVID, post-vaccine, and we're going to be having a good time. In each of those cities, you'll hear a live recording of the podcast. We'll be talking to a brilliant historian. And we'll also be talking to a historian of each of those localities. It's going to be super fun. And there'll be lots of multimedia in there as well. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. If you do come to those live tours, it'd be crazy not to come wearing History Hit merch, which is for sale at the History Hit shop. Brilliant stocking fillers. All you need is over there. Go to historyhit.com shop. Get merched up then they'll be able to send you to the right auditorium come the autumn. In the meantime, though, everybody, here is Kate Williams. Enjoy. I have tried to get in the pod before. I'm embarrassed you haven't been on the pod, and it is long overdue. You're going to be on the pod again before long, I'm, not, I'm, I'm certain. Uh, and also, I'm glad because you brought your daughter to the recording, and... Um, well, actually, I'm a bit worried about that because her reading level is really very She's far advanced. Checker. She's going to check if any. If I, if I give you a wrong date, she can come in and check the facts. Well, that's what I'm worried about because she's the same age as my daughter, but my daughter is not yet reading the Hiccup, the Viking uh, chapter book. So uh, she's still on the picture version. So I'm going to go home and um, get a bit Tiger Mum on her, I think. <laughs> uh, right. You are here talking about one of the great figures of British history. Tell me about her. Uh, my new book is about Mary Queen of Scots. It's called Rival Queens, The Betrayal of Mary Queen of Scots. And I'm fascinated by the idea of two queens in one island. But I'm also particularly fascinated by Mary herself and what she experienced as a queen. I think so often we see her as either a failure or a tragic queen. 
But in terms of queenship, what she was doing was not dissimilar to many other very successful queens. It's just that it failed for her. Well, listen, we're all failures. I, I don't, I don't hold that against her. And and we, so let's not talk about her as a prisoner uh, yet. Let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about well, let's talk about her young life uh, and how she started out on this remarkable path. Well, Mary was born into in, into chaos really her father really felt that he was losing everything to the to the british and when she was born he thought that was the end of everything he said essentially he said it started with a woman and it ends with a woman it, it, it'll gang with a lass by which he meant that the the whole the whole of his uh, family had begun with a woman and arguably and now she was going to be the end of it because with a woman on the throne what could stop Henry VIII from overtaking the entirety of the country? That was very much how he felt. And ha- remind me of her relationship to uh, Henry VII, the Tudor dynasty. So she is related to Henry VII through um, she through her aunt. So her father was, of course, uh, J- James V of Scotland. Her her mother was Mary of Guise of France, and her grandmother was uh, Margaret Tudor. So she she has, I mean, she has this amazing lineage. She is a cousin of, of Edward VI, who, they, they, who Henry VIII future hopes that she will marry. And she is herself a Tudor in many ways, but she's definitely seen as a Stuart. And it definitely is by this point, the division between Henry VIII in England and James in Scotland. And it was called at the time, uh, the rough wooing, which uh, with the, the England's attempt to sort of crush Scotland into submission and grab it as a territory. And certainly James felt that when he produced nothing but a girl, he'd had two boys, but they died. When he produced nothing but a girl, what what was the point? They were going to be overrun. So he was already pretty ill, but having a daughter pushed him over the edge and pretty much killed him. So she was um, an infant on the throne. She was an infant on the throne, and we know through history that infants on the throne are not uh, success- not particularly successful in history. People see infants on the throne as fair game, they'll gather around them, and also because children uh, are, are so vulnerable in the early modern period, it is very likely that they might die, so people are constantly grouping around someone else. Uh, so she was a, a, a child regnant, but her mother, Mary of Guise, was essentially regent for her. But unlike a, a boy child regnant, she's constantly seen as a liability. She's constantly seen as as going to be kidnapped. So they, they become very fearful that this child queen is going to be kidnapped by Henry VIII and whisked off to England and forcibly married to Edward VI. And there are treaties in which she will... Uh, actually married with the sixth, but not till she's much older. So, so they become quite terrified that she's going to be kidnapped, and that will mean the end of all Scotland's independence. So, her mother Mary of Guise makes a decision to send her off to marry the future King of France, and she's sent off just at the age of five. And I mean, that's a very interesting choice, I think, because yes, on one hand, what what choice did the mother have? She was terrified that. Mary was going to be kidnapped, that she wasn't going to be safe. But here is a queen being sent out of her country to be brought up as a, a consort in, in, in the French court. And the French court was much safer. And it was where Mary of Guise was very happy. And Mary of Guise herself was from this, this very powerful family of the Guises who are constantly pushing for influence in the French court. And therefore, if they're marrying, if they're, they're, one of their own is marrying to the future king, then they're getting influence. So I, I do feel that 
Mary, Queen of Scots, even at five, she's already being betrayed. And one of, even though her mother thought she was doing the best for her, certainly she's becoming a pawn to Guy's ambition because it's just not a great idea if you're the monarch to be sent out of the country. And was there a suggestion? Was it were the two kingdoms, or in the marriage treaty, such as it was that, that the two kings would always remain distinct, like uh, Mary and Philip of Spain marry? Or was there talk of a a, a joint transmaritime, a, a joint monarchy where Scotland and France would forever have a union of the crowns? That was the vision. That was the ideal vision that Scotland and France would have the union. But certainly, it was very clear early on that France was going to be the key partner. That France was going to be the top dog in this and. Scotland was going to be the the dominated one. And it's very obvious when you look at the marriage treaties that Mary signs with the French royal family that they're essentially saying that if, if, she, if she has no heirs, the, the whole of the country will revert to France. So really, it's a marriage and it's shown as, and it's promoted as a union. But even in when Mary does marry the Dauphin, all the celebration, it's all about Scotland as the inferior one. These poets sing about Scotland as the child on the, on, on the French breast and it's, and, and Scotland is the, Mary is the golden fleece. It's made very clear that they are the junior partner in all of this. And so in that, we see the essential problem of every queen regnant in this period who who do you marry and if you do marry how how can you marry without being without your whole country being seen as subservient as a wife is supposed to be so by the time mary marries the dauphin henry the eighth is dead yes. ed, ed is edward on the throne so by the time mary marries the dauphin it is much, much later. We're now looking at 1558 now. So we've had Henry, um, Edward has died, and now we're at the end of Mary's reign at this point. And so Mary Tudor yes. um, is Catholic like her cousin. So actually it doesn't look quite as threatening from Mary Tudor's point of view. No, you're absolutely right, Dan. I mean, had there been this... Because when Mary marries the Dauphin, she has this marvellous childhood being brought up in the French court, uh, getting on very well with her future husband, getting on very well with the princesses. The French king, uh, he actually puts her in precedence over his daughters. So it's all marvellous. Everything's splendid. And she gets on quite well with a very powerful mistress, Diane de Poitiers, and that's important. Not too bad getting on with Catherine de Medici, but that's hard. So she has a, a pretty idyllic childhood in, and, and adolescence in the French court and then marries in 1558. And it is this huge celebration of Scotland and France as union. I mean, Scotland's the junior partner, very clearly. But it's huge. It's all, it's all pomp. It's all circumstance. It's all power. There were these gigantic mise en scenes. So, the, the, in one of the, I, I mean, um, in one of the weddings, I'm, I'm sure you've been to some fabulous weddings in your time, Dan. But I don't know if you've ever been to one where everyone got, uh, all the, the the principal men got in a boat and went round this boat round the wedding banquet, and the they, they got a lady in the boat with them and carried on riding round the boat together in a sort of big mise en scene, which would celebrate the rescue of Mary. Indeed, when I was writing the book. Um, I had a query from the copy editor. She said, but they've been banqueting all day. Are they going to another banquet? Said, yeah, they did. They went to one banquet in one place and moved to another banquet for more mise-en-scenes. So it was this huge celebration of Scotland and France. And yes, it would have been Henry VIII's worst nightmare. I mean, he would have thrown a complete fit, Edward, Edward VI and his protectors. But with Mary, uh, it is seen as less, she sees it as less of a threat uh, because they are great Catholic monarchs together. 
So you've got Mary Tudor on the throne of England. You've got Mary Stuart now. We're well, on the throne of Scotland and now married to the heir to the throne of France. You've got lots of these powerful women around in the mid-16th century. Is that just total coincidence or, or was there something going on that allowed women to play a more prominent role in high politics? I think certainly, we, although it's a coincidence with Mary, Queen of Scots, she was the only female child. Uh, we do see a lot of very powerful women, uh, whether they're wives like Catherine de' Medici or mistresses like Diane de Poitiers or regnants, uh, regents such as Mary of Guise for Mary, Queen of Scots. So I do think we see increasing the levels of powerful women. So Elizabeth I, when she comes to the throne, is, is not necessarily the anomaly that we always think because there's a long tradition of very powerful uh, female consorts, female queens, and also to a degree uh, princesses and ladies of the manor. And I think certainly that uh, the, the the fact is that I think one one reason why women get more power by this point is because the court is becoming so important, is because court skills are so much more important. We have, although it's a, still a violent age, there's much less physical fighting all the time. And there are, there is, because there's more court politics, actual political roles and intellectual discussion, that's something that w- women can more easily insert themselves in. And we are in the period of the great personality tyrant. So if the, per- if the great tyrant is willing to listen to his mistress or queen, then she has power too. Right, so everything's going swimmingly for Mary Stuart, and then suddenly, catastrophe. So everything is going absolutely splendidly. Uh, it's, it's, it's not uh, received brilliantly in Britain that she, she declares herself Queen of England as well. The French king says she's Queen of, of France, uh, Scotland and England. That's not received very brilliantly, but the English kind of decide to brush under the carpet and ignore it. So things things go are going fantastically. It's all marvellous. And then her her great father, the great King Henri, is killed um, with a lance in his eye. It's incredible how many people get fatal jousting injuries. So he's killed with a lance in his eye. Her her father her husband becomes king. She becomes the queen, but her husband really is quite sickly and he dies very quickly they they haven't been king and queen very long he he dies not very long afterwards and then she's in this impossible position she's not the queen anymore or she she's not the queen anymore she's the dowager queen she's only a young woman and no one wants her no one wants her in the french court catherine de medici never liked her very much and now wants her to go no one wants her in france uh, certainly the geese is trying to marry her but no, but they don't don't really want her anyway and scotland sends the lords out to ask her to come back to them. So she she decides to head back to Scotland uh, at 18. Her mother, Mary of Guise, who'd been regent, is dead. And so she decides to return to this country to be their queen, in which she hasn't lived. She barely remembers. She barely knows. She knows nothing about. And so she's pitched into this impossible life. Uh, mo- I mean, many of our best queens... We think of Elizabeth I, we think of Victoria, we think to a degree of Elizabeth II. I mean, obviously, they all grew up in their countries, but they were on the outside of court life, of public life, of majesty. And so they were on the outside looking in. So they had a peculiar and particular outsider's perspective of what was important and how to win the love of the people. And you see Elizabeth I using that in a very effective way. Not She uses her time in, really, sort of exile in Mary's reign, not only to build up her very um, 
loyal men, such as the great William Cecil, but also to, to take the stock of her country. But you have Mary coming back, Mary Stuart, and she doesn't know anybody. She has no loyal friends, no loyal advisors. She's got no William Cecil. And she's pitched into a world where she has no idea and she's very used to the high, the high finesse, the high court politics, the, the polite world of the French court. And Scotland is different. Was it a little more rugged? It was a little more rugged. And rather than there were basically in France two controlling families, the Guises and the Montmorencies, who were both always battling for power in the court. In Scotland, there are many, many families and there are a lot of long-held grudges, a lot of long-held rivalries over everything from from marriages to castles to, to power to money. So she is in a world of very, a very different world and a very different world of incredibly complicated and political shifting rivalries between the lords. And this is a world in which she has no idea about. And yes, and her mother, her mother had been dealing with it. And yes, had she grown up, her life would have been much more dangerous and difficult and, and very hard. But she would have had a better idea, I think, of what she was letting herself in for. So she's 18 years old. She's one of the first queen regnants in the, the whole of British history. She's never really been to the country. She had no experience in the country. How does she do in the job? Well, initially, I mean, she's incredibly well received. People are delighted to see her because... I think that we see this over and over again in in 16th century history that other other possible people are put up for the throne, but the the actual ordinary people want someone with royal blood. So we see that with Lady Jane Grey that she's so easily pitched off the throne for Mary, who is truly the daughter of Henry VIII. So she's very well received. She is the daughter of James. She is the rightful queen. They're delighted to have her back. But she starts to get into the problems of the rivalries between the various lords because she wants to be queen in the same way that Mary uh, Mary the Tudor was, in the same way that Elizabeth I was, but they want her to be a figurehead and they want to do what they please under her. And one of the great problems is that is that already Scotland's Protestant um, revolution has advanced a great deal. And so by the time Mary comes, who is a, a good French Catholic, it, it, she is seen as antithetical by many of them. And some of the lords are truly, genuinely great religious men. Some of them just want to keep the, the lands that they've grabbed from the abbeys and the, and the monasteries. But you do have a, a very strong Protestant faction and they immediately see her as a threat. And particularly in this group uh one of, i mean the man who's the most important to her life is i mean there are a lot of Jameses in the story every one of her father you know she was like born into this long line of baby people uh basically everyone was called james when she arrived and broke it to be called mary and now her brother james stewart he is her half brother by her father and a, and a mistress and he is has had a lot of power in the court is it and he is a very keen Protestant and he'll be the one who causes most of, uh, who, who has the most influence on Mary's life. Initially, they're very friendly, but very not very long after he tries to unseat her with a military coup. And that's the beginning of, she's repeatedly tried to be unseated, repeatedly threatened and repeatedly challenged. Uh, so she's in, she's in physical danger as well as in p- political turmoil. Yeah, she is in physical danger and... It's interesting because she makes some bad choices. But when you think of Elizabeth I, um, 
her, and not only did, was she, did she luck out in having Walsingham and Cecil behind her, but also uh, there's you don't really read anyone but madmen saying, I'm going to kidnap the Queen and, and assault her and marry her. I mean, that people just don't say that. Whereas and the madman said it for Victoria. I mean, a couple of men knocked on the door and said that he wanted looking for a wife and would the Queen marry, would the Queen might do. But but in, Mar- in Mary's terms, it's it's not it's not the madman. It's not the jokers. It's it's actually the men of high politics who are thinking, I'm going to kidnap her I'm, and I'm going to make her subservient to my wishes. And we see this constantly throughout uh, throughout Mary's early life. And she is repeatedly under threat. And so she brings in these she brings in uh, policies that are very like Elizabeth's ones of toleration, uh, not as not as perhaps turning a blind eye as Elizabeth, but not not too far off. But that isn't seen as good enough because her power base isn't strong enough for, for her to simply be this. Well, I don't really mind if Protestants get on with their own services. I won't really say anything. Uh, it, it, she need she's too too threatened and too vulnerable because she simply hasn't got any real power base behind her apart from her ladies in waiting and, and their friends. There are no none of the big powerful men uh, trust her. She does eventually choose a husband, though, doesn't she? How does that work? Well, uh, Mary also has the misfortune to marry um, two of the Francis is fine. But she has three husbands, and the second two, I think, are the worst consorts in royal history. And that—I mean—that's a competition. a competition. There are some bad consorts out there, and I'd say she's got the two worst ones. So her first one, Lord Darnley, she really wants to marry, and she isn't like Elizabeth, who who keeps the marriage game going. She really does want to marry, partly because she wants to do her duty and produce a child, but also because she she does believe the ideology that a man will help her. A man will strengthen her and a man will be the shoulders she can cry on. So Elizabeth suggests that Mary marries her beloved Robert Dudley, who they are uh, best chums, as we know, probably more than best chums. And Mary is very insulted by that because Dudley is, of course, a, a traitor's son. He's not the best idea for a husband for her. And she knows he's Elizabeth's uh, very close friend. I say she really doesn't want that. And really, when Elizabeth suggests Dudley as a possible husband, Mary is very insulted and moves towards Lord Darnley, who does have a degree of acclaim towards um, Mary's throne. He does have a degree of acclaim towards Elizabeth's throne. And he's been pretty much under what we might call as house arrest, very nice house arrest, him and his family in Elizabeth's court. Elizabeth sets him free really to put the cat among the pigeons in Scotland and he he does too well he's Mary falls in love with him on the spot he's he's he has a royal claim he's good he, he's going to rattle Elizabeth's cage because he has a claim to Elizabeth's throne and and he's handsome and he's young and he's just perfect and the parent Darnley's mother really engineers it very keenly and Mary falls in love with him marries him and initially, it all seems rather rather great. There's a wonderful wedding banquet. But Darnley is a very poor husband. He alienates everyone. He particularly alienates uh, James Stewart, the Earl of Murray, who were talking about Mary's half-brother. He alienates him by saying, I think you've got too much land. They feel he's Catholic. They're, they, they already begin to panic that he's going too far. And taking going to take Mary as, as a Catholic monarch, and they are going to be excluded. Um, and so, when Mary when when Mary falls pregnant, there begins to be increasing 
concern because with the child, she'll be, she and Dani will be stronger. And we have the first of the most terrible events in Mary's reign, which is the death of her, uh, her musician. So she has a musician, David Rizzio, who she promotes to be her secretary. And one night when she's eating on a Saturday night, in her palace with a few friends and Rizzio. Uh, d- there's a huge amount of conspirators, a lot of the lords with Darnley behind them. They come up through Darnley's room and break in to Mary's supper chamber, seize Rizzio and try and stab him. And there's this totally violent Saturday night altercation in which Mary's holding, holding Rizzio behind her skirts and begging them to set him free and then one of them waves a gun at her and she thinks she's going to die and then they they take off Rizzio and they stab him I think it's you know nearly 50 times and just throw him down the stairs and then they imprison Mary in the in the castle because it's not really all about Rizzio yes they hated him yes they thought he had too much influence he thought he was a Catholic but really they want to use him as a way of imprisoning Mary in the castle and so Darnley gets all the power. So Darnley is behind this attack? Yes. I mean, there are plenty of other people who've encouraged him to do it, but Darnley is behind the attack. He wants Mary... He he basically wants to depose Mary and so he can rule for the child along with the lords. So it's not the greatest thing that you might hope your husband to do. It's a bad thing for marital relations, I I think. Uh, But um, Mary, uh, she does... She does manage to win Darnley over. Darnley comes to see her and he says, you've got to submit. And she says, I don't want to. And, oh, I think the Lords are going to turn against you as well. And maybe, maybe it'll be, maybe you won't, things are going to be bad for you too. So Darnley actually does help her to escape. But the other person who helps her escape is Lord Bothwell. And Mary thus trusts Lord Bothwell. And that's going to be a very bad thing. So Mary's in a terrible position. I mean, her lords, her, her the men who are supposed to be advising her and helping her are busily trying to get her off the phone as fast as they can in any kind of way. And she she genuinely feels that she's under going to be killed by them, that they were they were not just waving a gun at her to threaten her. She genuinely feels they're trying to kill her. You're listening to History Hit. Kate Williams and I are talking about Mary, Queen of Scots. More after this. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Okay, so then she manages to style the house, survives. Um, what? How, how does her marriage go with Darnley after that? So she makes her comeback. They all know people still feel very strongly that she should be on the throne. She makes her comeback. She gives birth to a son, which is marvellous. That's absolutely great. And uh, the Scott... She chooses a, a very unusual name a for very him. Unusual... <laughs> exactly. She has a very unusual name. She thinks, I know, let's call him James. So she, the um, the Scottish ambassador can't ride fast enough to tell Elizabeth the news that uh, Mary's had a child. But having a son is a complicated thing for a queen. On one hand, you're powerful. On the other hand, everyone thinks, let's just depose her for him because he's just uh, just, a, just a baby, but he's still a man and that's more important. But, but and, and so Mary, uh, James is taken away and he's given, he, he, he's given his own little nursery as things would be in a different castle. But things begin to go very badly with Darnley and the lords begin to become obsessed that he must be got rid of, that he's a bad influence. He's, 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 always, he's always going out drinking. He's causing fights. He probably has syphilis. He has various affairs. So the lords begin to be obsessed with the fact that he needs to be got rid of. And so they speak to Mary about, about divorcing him. There is some talk made towards the Pope about, about a divorce on the grounds of consanguinity, but they, they are really only kind of seconds, the cousins a bit removed. I mean, that's basically all of royalty if you, if you say that their marriages are too close. So, and they, and, and this is the, and this is where things start getting murky is, is then, then what happens and who knows what and what happens when, because Darnley, Mary, it's obviously going to be very complicated to divorce him. Uh, and then Mary is told that maybe the Lords might have a better idea of something they could do and that her half-brother, Lord Murray, will, will look through his fingers at it. And that's all very cryptic as to what exactly is going on. Uh, and then we have the fateful moment. And this is in February. We're in Edinburgh and we're all, it's a very, we're all, we're all fast asleep. It's, and... Edinburgh is quiet and there's this huge explosion that rocks Edinburgh and wakens up all the people from their houses. Mary is in the palace and feels like there's a cannon. And what it is, is that a house uh, quite near the city walls has exploded. And this was the house in which Darnley was staying. And almost immediately, he is found not to be in the house, but he's in the nearby orchard. And he's underneath the tree with his servant. And now it gets a bit Cluedo-ish because beside him is a rope and a dagger and a chair and a cloak. 
So it's very odd. Darnley was staying in a different house to Mary. He'd been in Glasgow and then he'd come back to stay in this house in Kirkerfield in Edinburgh. And um, Mary had been staying in the rooms below and she'd been visiting Darnley. There'd been a huge court wedding. She'd gone back to her palace in Holyrood and yet Darnley remained. And then the whole house was blown up, but then he was found nearby under the orchard. So that's quite mysterious. And there's this brilliant map, which you can see in the um, National Archives, but because I didn't manage to steal it when I went, um, I'm going to get it... <laughs> Here we are to look at it in my very cracked phone. But it's an amazing map, and this was drawn by the spies at the time, by the English spies who were on the case, on the scene, faster than anyone else. So you can see, here's here's the house, Kirkerfield. I will put this on the Instagram and the Facebook, oh, everybody. Yes. Here at the house, and that's, that's down into rubble. Just there, you can see it. Uh, and there, here is, here is Darnley, and here is his servant under the orchard. And there's the cloak. You can see it there, and there's the dagger, and there's there's the dagger, and there's a chair and the dressing gown, and they're obviously half naked. And you also see here, it's a quite a political message. You can see baby, baby, the baby James, his son, crying for vengeance. So, but he's dead. He's dead. Darnley is dead. Darnley is dead. So this is the mystery. If the house is blown up, what's he doing under the orchard? Now, one of the servant is found clinging to the city walls, propelled by the blast. But it's clear this hasn't happened to Darnley and his servant. So what did happen to them? And there are various witnesses who say they hear men running up and down outside the, the, the house. So what we think happened is that some men came in to the house and were heading up to strangle Darnley. He heard it, jumped out of the window using the rope and the chair with his dressing gown and fled but they caught up with him and they caught him in the orchard and they killed him there. And then the house was blown up. So it would have been the perfect crime. Had he not heard and escaped, it would have been the perfect crime. He would have been blown up and everyone would have just said, oh, gunpowder. But because of that, because he's found dead in the orchard, it's very clear that he's been murdered. And almost immediately, the murder, the murder it's, the news is across the whole of Europe. The Queen's husband has been murdered and who did it? Because clearly it, it wasn't just a, a random mugger who got a bit over-enthusiastic with the dagger. This is a planned murder plot. And does suspicion settle upon Mary? Suspicion does settle upon Mary. Suspicion settles upon everyone at the beginning and there is this panic of, 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 of counter-recrimination. But, but suspicion does settle, settle on Mary and... One reason very early is because she is seen not to pursue the the killers. And one, she's discussing it with the Privy Council and they say they're going to pursue them. But to many people, including Elizabeth, it looks like she's being far too relaxed about it. Just saying, oh, well, maybe the killers, well, we'll just find them. And she is in a shock, which we, uh, I've read a lot of interesting books about this, that it's often important in court cases. You, you, there's a certain way in which one is supposed to act when one is in in a state of shock and grief. You're not supposed to act in a dazed way, or you're you're supposed to be be hysteric. What what they wanted was what Mary should have done is performed hysterical weeping, but she's too much in shock and she can't manage it. And so for some people, this looks like she 
doesn't care and she's callous. And of course, everyone knows that she didn't really love her husband anymore. And increasingly, people begin to say, well, it's quite good for her, isn't it, that he's out of the way? But it's also, you know, I might argue, and I do in the book, quite good for someone else, quite good for a lot of people that he's out of the way. And there are other people who I think are key to the manipulation of the murder plot. And certainly it seems as if some of the English spies did know it was afoot because a lot of these these lords of Mary do have an idea. I mean, I am very suspicious about the Earl of Moray because he suddenly manages to pop away just before Darnley's murdered. He suddenly says, I've got to go. My wife's ill. I have to go and help her. So unlike everyone else, he's not in Edinburgh when it happens. And then not long after it happens, he decides he has to go and live in England. And he does benefit. He completely benefits from uh, Qui Bono leads directly to him. He's the one who benefits from it. He, 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 because Darnley was getting too, he and Darnley had fallen out. Darnley was going to try and rule for, for the, for the son, for the baby. If Darnley's not around, the next one in line is, is pretty much Moray. So, so he again wants to come in and it, it benefits him hugely if Darnley is dead and Mary is thrown into such, 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 such suspicion. What begins very clearly after the death of Darnley is that those who start manoeuvring, those who think they can start manoeuvring to imprison her and to get her and so they can get power. Sometimes, I mean, I wonder, I wonder, you know, you know, you, oh, it's a strange comparison, but... Uh, Straight after the Brexit vote, when everyone was busy, lots of people were busy trying to uh, unseat Jeremy Corbyn, that you kind of see that everyone's, uh, when everyone was thinking about the murder, the lords were thinking about something else. And this was how to get Mary's power for themselves. And Mary doesn't help herself. She doesn't make a huge amount of public grief. She goes to a wedding in the middle of her, well, very early on in her period of grief. She shouldn't have done that. And also, she should have pursued murderers. I think she knew who did it and didn't want to pursue them because they were so close to her. But unfortunately, this is the age of the show trial. You have to pursue someone. So someone should have been put on trial. And indeed, later on, we do see all the servants of the lords who are involved being put on trial and and being the scapegoats for it. And clearly Mary didn't do that. And so to all Europe, you see these horrified letters coming from Catherine de Medici, coming from Elizabeth I, saying, you've got to stop this. You've got to find the murderer. You you must. And still Mary continues in this crazed, panicked days. It's hard to blame her. I mean, do, do we have, you have a strong sense of her, her state of mind during this period? She does write letters saying she doesn't understand what's happened. She can't bear it. I, I mean, I think her, her feelings of guilt come from the fact that she knew that the Lords were plotting something. She just didn't realise that it was murder. She thought it was more along the lines of threatening Darnley, of talking about divorce to him, of saying what could happen to him. And so, But she also, I mean, she knows that many people, including her half-brother, are involved in this and how can she get them? So you see this, this is uneasy, this kind of, disaster and the public who had loved her begin to become very resentful of her and we start seeing placards all over Edinburgh saying 
saying, accusing various people of doing it. And who they start to accuse is who she starts to depend on. And that is Lord Bothwell, who helped her to escape from the Rizzio plot. She depends on him. She thinks he's trustworthy. But of course, he's not in the slightest. And we start to see a lot of uh, resentment of him, a lot of resentment, uh, blaming of him for the the murder. He certainly was involved and probably did a lot of the dirty work. And we we start to see uh, people saying that she, she and him are in cahoots. And uh, what we also put on the page as well is we you know some of these placards become very um they become incredibly pointed and so this is a brilliant one which is also in our wonderful national archives um of mary as a mermaid yeah this is brilliant this is a copy by one of the uh, english of one of the placards so this is one of the placards that was put all over all over edinburgh and you know as soon as you take them down as soon as the government took them down Someone puts them back up again. And this is Mary here as a mermaid with Mary Regina. And this is meant to be Bothwell here, down here, in because that's, um, that's his cipher, the hair, and J.H. his name, and surrounded by these rather phallic-looking swords. And you might, we might think, oh, how nice, a mermaid, because we love mermaids. I mean, we all are such a big fan of mermaids. But a mermaid in the 16th century is a word, is a synonym for prostitute. So what they're basically saying here, and I mean, I don't know what you think of this, Dan, what the queen as the topless mermaid here is holding, what, I mean, what that is suggestive of, that large sea flower. So Mary's holding this flower, which is in a rather suggestive shape, and she's surrounded by these phallic swords coming off Bothwell. And this is basically saying... Mary is a prostitute. Bothwell is involved in the murder and she's doing it for him. So, and this is put out on the 1st of March. So even with under a month, people are saying Mary and Bothwell did it together. And the government try and clamp down on the placards, but they just keep popping up over and over again. So Mary is in this horrific and impossible position. She is, her husband is dead and people are beginning to whisper across the world that she and Bothwell did it. Let's let's keep going. How does Mary end up an exile and a prisoner? Well, you know, in every movie, uh, you know, when you when you kind of study this screenwriting, which I occasionally have, they say there's an all is lost moment in every movie. Maybe it was sort of two thirds in when the character loses everything, and. Um, and then, and then they lose it. They lose something that they thought was important. And they lose everything else. So Mary, she thinks she's at her all is lost moment, but it's going to get worse, much worse than this. So what happens is um, there becomes this uneasy truce, and she says she's going to investigate the murderers. And, and, and there, there is this show trial. Bothwell is put on trial. He's found not guilty, and it, he goes around Edinburgh crowing. But uh, there is an uneasy truce. And then Mary goes to visit her son at his nursery in Stirling. And on the way back, Bothwell and a load of his men pop up and Bothwell puts his hand on her bridle. And this is, we might argue, the Me Too, uh, the Me Too moment in Mary's, everything about, because there has been a lot, there was a lot of comments saying, oh, she didn't, he didn't really take her she really wants to marry him and this was her 
cunning way of doing it because she was really in love with him. Because what he does is he puts his hands on her bridle. He says he's going to take her. He says that, he says, he says that there's in Edinburgh there's riots and she mustn't go there because it's not safe. And um, he's, she hasn't got many servants. So he basically says he's going to take her and she hasn't really got much choice but to go with him. She trusts him. She goes back to a castle with him, a castle that she gave him. And then he 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 rapes her in the castle. He he ravishes her, as is said at the time that he, one of the men who was with her said he he said he would have the queen, whether she will or no. So he he rapes her in the castle. So it couldn't, nothing could be worse. Mary has been kidnapped. She's been raped. And what Bothell wants to do is he wants to marry her because he knew he knew she wouldn't marry him otherwise. So this is a way of doing it. And. It is not unheard of that women are 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 assaulted into marriage in this way. That they, women who say they won't marry someone or their fathers won't allow the marriage, the 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 suitor kidnaps them, rapes them, and then what what choice does either the father or the the woman have? So Mary's in this impossible, terrible position, uh, and and really this is when she really loses all her judgment. She I I think she believes she's pregnant by Bothwell. And she throws her lot in with him and she thinks that, well, she's got to marry him now. She's got to, she said later that it is done and we must make the best of it. Whereas obviously now we would say, no, you don't have to marry him. You know, absolutely not. And you are the queen. And even though an ordinary woman would be expected to marry her rapist at this point, you are the queen and you are different and people will allow it not to happen. But She's obviously a very deeply religious woman. She thinks she's pregnant. And Mary marries Bothwell in this miserable ceremony. But that's the beginning of the end. By this point, the Earl of Murray, who's returned, and his friends think they're going to get her off the throne. And the justification is she has, they will get her off the throne for her son and they'll be regent for her son because she's not a fit monarch. This is what they start to say. She has, did not, she's now married her husband's murderer. She is a bad monarch she's a bad queen and so you see her being you, 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 essentially the two sides go to war um mary and bothwell and murray and his men and murray wins and mary bothwell trundles off and mary then is surrendered to the lords and she's taken back to edinburgh she's weeping she's put in prison and she appears after this, she put in prison in, in the in the toll house and she appears to the people with her bodice unlaced, her hair wild, this amazing hair. I mean, she's an incredibly beautiful woman. She's five foot eleven. She's got this amazing open hair. She's a fabulous statuesque woman. And so she's always been dignified and perfect. And now she's in this huge grief and hysteria. And um, that's essentially, she's imprisoned. It's the end of her reign. Uh, the, the Mary Queen of Scots that we knew is no more at this point. And she does, she's taken off to a very, very isolated prison, does manage to escape. And this is her mistake. She then, she 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 has supporters because actually people, people although you can see the shifting loyalties, people are actually beginning to say, were we really right to imprison the Queen? Was that really what we should have done? And maybe she didn't, maybe Bothwell was, now Bothwell's been bad, now Bothwell's gone, she'll be fine again. So you see people going over to her side and supporting her. But then then she, she thinks, I I just will get captured again in Scotland. And she makes a fatal error. She escapes. She rides 60 miles. She shaves her hair. She lives on, lives on the ground. She escapes. She's in a stronghold. 
but she is nervous about riding again and she thinks, I'm going to go into England so Elizabeth can help me get back on the throne. I'm going to go to England, get some English forces and come in and get the throne back. And that's a fatal error because the minute she she arrives in in Carlisle, not far from Carlisle, in a little boat and she's immediately put in Carlisle Castle and the poor old... Um, governor of Carlisle. I mean, he's very stuck. Is she prisoner? Is she not? Because Mary's immediately saying, I want to go to London to meet with Elizabeth. I want to speak to Elizabeth and tell her everything. And she'll put back, put me back on the throne. And this is the beginning of it. And how many years is she then in Elizabeth I's prisoner? Mary is then Elizabeth I's prisoner for the rest of her life. First, there is a... Uh, Elizabeth I says she can't see her until it is decreed that she is not guilty of her husband's murder. So there is an inquiry opened at York in which everyone decides whether or not Mary is guilty or not guilty. Mary refuses to be seen by a court because she says, I'm the queen, I'm not, I'm not having this. Some letters arrive, which are seen as evidence. Uh, we don't, but the Mary's forged letters, I would argue, we don't know what they are. They're these letters that suddenly pop up uh, when the Earl of Murray has asked for evidence and he finds these suddenly letters in a casket under a bed and which they're all about Mary saying, yes, I love you Bothwell. I don't like Darnley and let's kill him. Very convenient. And so these letters are brought out, but Mary's not allowed to see them. She isn't allowed to, 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 to discuss them. And the the outcome of the inquiries, the various inquiries, is the essentially the worst of both worlds. It's no verdict. Mary's not guilty, but she's not innocent. So it's no verdict. So Mary's in this state of suspended animation, really, where she isn't innocent, she isn't guilty, and so she's kept in these luxurious prisons as a luxurious prisoner for then onwards. So uh, Mary has this miserable life living in the prisons. Um, she's always begging Elizabeth to meet her. And it's amazing to read the letters. Please meet me. Just please, please, please. She's like a tiny fairy pulling at Elizabeth's gown. Elizabeth's like, no, 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 no. And so what you see Mary getting involved in is plots. Initially, she's very resistant to plots. But increasingly, you start to get, see her getting involved in plots because she feels she has no choice but to get involved in plots. And these plots are not just to free her, but to depose Elizabeth and put her on the throne in her place. And Philip of Spain is involved. The French are involved. The spies are involved. So Mary and Mary gets involved in various plots, but none of them have quite the evidence that Walsingham needs. And so you, what finally happens is that Mary is in a particular castle and Walsingham... Uh, gets this double agent. I mean, this is the time of the spies and the double agent. You get this amazing double agent who goes to her and he says, um, well, um, I've been in France with your friends and I'm going to take letters for you. And Mary, unfortunately, says, what a good idea, whereas this guy is a double agent. And so Mary has this amazing, she thinks it's amazing way of of not her letters being not seen. They have this fantastic code ciphers, also the National Archives, amazing ciphers. And then you make it into a teeny, tiny, teeny, tiny little, fold it up, the, the letter. And then you put it in a teeny, teeny, tiny cork of a beer barrel and you send the beer barrel out. And then the beer barrel is, is, is open and the cork is taken out. But of course, she's going through all this amazing subterfuge and 
the English Walsingham, everyone knows what she's doing because this French man, the double agent, tells them everything. So every letter that she puts into the beer barrel is immediately removed and the guy, Walsingham's best codebreaker, is in the same castle. He's just basically there installed and he just reads every letter. And um, finally, Mary is sent a letter saying, shall we depose the Queen? And she she writes back saying, yes, let's do it. And the codebreaker, Philippes, actually drew a hangman on there. He drew a a man being hanged because he knew he had what he, he knew he had the dynamite he wanted and that was what was needed and so mary is then put on trial for for trying to depose and kill the queen put on trial for treason of course she says she can't possibly be on, on trial she's a queen she protests her innocence she says she's been set up she says that the she never wrote letters her secretaries did um, but the moment in which it's shown to her in the court that they knew her codes all along that's what is the pulls the rug from out of her. She puts on this brilliant, brilliant defence. But unlike her defence in the previous inquiries into her conduct about the husband's murder, she's not, she's guilty. She did it. She did actually get involved in these plots. And so although we might say she had no choice, she is guilty of what she is charged of. And, and she's found guilty. And then poor Elizabeth is then mired in indecision because everyone is telling her to execute Mary, um, her ministers, parliament, her people. Uh, it's, you see this tension between Elizabeth and her ministers in the sense that she and Walsingham and Cecil just don't think that she understands the Catholic threat enough and they think she's too soft on Catholics and she doesn't get it. So they're constantly pushing her. And there are arguments to, in which some of the Catholic plots against her are their invention, trying to push her into action. But certainly... She is. She should. She doesn't want to execute a queen. She debates. She worries. But finally, she's pushed into it, and there is no choice. She 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 takes the the execution warrant. It's in Lambeth Palace archives now. It's amazing to look at. She takes it and she signs it. And what's very interesting is then the minute because Cecil's been waiting for it. He's been desperate, waiting for it. When he's got it, he says, "Okay." Now let's proceed without talking to the Queen further. Let's just get on with it. Let's just get on with it. So she may think that she's doing something symbolic that she can then rescind. But Cecil just says, let's, let's just get on with it. And so immediately he's got the execution warrant in his hand. He he sets it, sets it straight away, sends men off immediately to gallop to Mary and say, you're going to be chopped off tomorrow morning. And the Mr. Bull, the executioner, is on his way with the axe. So get ready. Elizabeth then tries to absolve herself of it, saying she was forced into it by her counsellors. Yes, she does. So the execution takes place. Mary does this big Catholic martyr set up the because they're trying to get her to pray, to, to to recant her um, religion on the on the on the block. She refuses. They they treat her very badly. They won't let her. It's not like Anne Boleyn where she gets a certain amount of dignity in the French swordsman. They tell her that her ladies can't accompany her. That the the, the execution is going to undress her. That is very undignified. And and but she she is so dignified and she prays the way she wants to the way throughout. So actually, she she gets the last word and she wins. But when the news reaches Elizabeth, she is devastated. She weeps. She cries. She begs forgiveness of Mary's young son James, who's now a teenager. 
um, she can't believe it. Uh, many people say that she knew what was going on and she's just performing her grief now. She's just pretending, trying to get the best of both worlds. I didn't mean to, but oh dear, it's happened. But I do think um, she was genuinely um, shocked by what had happened because it's it's one thing chopping off the heads of traitors. It's one thing chopping off the heads of men who get above themselves. But executing a queen is something that is really such a big thing because if a queen can be executed what is royal about them at all i mean what separates them from the normal people so she does actually elizabeth try and get someone to to just kill mary in in the so she mary has a very mean keeper uh, Paulie, and she basically says to him, "Could you like just bump her off?" And Paulie says, "No, I am not doing that. You know, you do it." It's like Mary's like this hot potato. You kill her. No, you kill her. I don't want to do it. And so Elizabeth is devastated, and she's also, of course, very concerned that it, it, it's not only a, a piece, a grievous thing that she's done that she doesn't wish she that it also will bring down the the sort of ire of of, of Scotland will bring down the ire of Catholic Europe upon her, and um, so. So the ports are closed for a long period after Mary is 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 executed. It's it's Elizabeth England basically shuts down, but so Elizabeth is uh, is is devastated at what's happened. But I do think that when she signed, she must have. Although Cecil didn't tell her what he was doing, I think she did. She must have had a suspicion that it might not that it might have gone straight to straight to execution, as it were. Well, it's just one of the most remarkable and tragic stories in in, uh, British history. Uh, Thank you. What's the book called? The book is called Rival Queens, The Betrayal of Mary Queen of Scots, and is out on the 20th of September. And yes, so uh, so all my pictures that I talked about, the, the, the um, spy map, the, the, the set of Mary's codes, the mermaid in the hair. Um, I've got the pictures I will put on the internet, but I've also got them all in the book as well. And, and uh, yeah, I think she is a most fascinating figure. And she really points up how difficult it was to be a queen you can set out on set out with all the advantages beauty education grace uh, and true royal heritage and still uh, lose absolutely everything hi everybody just a quick message at the end of this podcast i'm currently sheltering in a small windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol Channel called Lundy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that frankly is apocalyptic because I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favour. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.